Welcome to the Ray Harryhausen Podcast, the show dedicated to the life, career and films of a special effects titan. Join us as we host in-depth discussions about the work, influences and legacy of this uniquely talented filmmaker. Brought to you by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, we will be delving into Ray's archive to bring a unique insight into his work, including exclusive audio from the man himself from our own archives. We will be joined by special guests for retrospectives, exclusive announcements and competitions. So this podcast is a must-listen for all fans of the world of Ray Harryhausen, animation and classic filmmaking. Welcome to episode four of the Ray Harryhausen podcast. I'm John Walsh. I'm a trustee of the Ray Harryhausen Foundation. I'm joined by our collections manager, Connor Heaney. Hello, Connor. Hello, John. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Yes, I'm great. I'm uh, excited to read some of these fan questions. We got a lot of feedback on our first two shows and it's great to go through some of these questions from our fans on social media. They want to pick your brain, John. So you're the, the Ray Harryhausen expert. I hope you're prepared for this. Uh, this this is where my, I'll be exposed as a fraud, as just a kind of an average fanboy. But yeah, go ahead. As it was written, a temple with many faces. It is the temple of the oracle of all knowledge. But I never thought to stand here. The great eminence. We must seek him out. Well, first of all, we had a question emailed in from Mike Kwasniak. And Mike would like to know a little more about the wider filmmaking process in which Ray played such an important role. So we hear a lot about Ray's animation techniques, for which he's most famous. But uh, Mike would like to know a little more about the process of how these movies got made. The planning, financing, production, involvement with directors, actors, editing. Basically, we know that Ray was involved in everything to do with the film. And Mike would like to know a little more about that. Um, and what his procedure was for getting all of these things done on such a demanding schedule. Well, it's a tricky one to answer because in the last episode we talked about Earth versus the Flying Saucers where things were done very cheaply, very fast. Lots of stock footage was used, so footage that had been used in other productions. Um, and the actors that were used were actors from television, so not people that were, were well-known in cinema. If you go fast forward to Ray's last film, Clash of the Titans, there was much more money. There was some very well-known names of, of uh, film and theatre taking part. Um, so it's really a tricky one. It's about asking how long is a piece of string. You know, Ray was a producer on all of these films. Even though he was only credited on, on the later ones as a producer, he was a producer with Charles Schneer. And together they would go to the studios and say, look, this is what we want to do what would you like us to do so the conversation starts at that point so for every film that was made there were two or three projects that were pitched with some lovely artwork and scripts and treatments that never got commissioned so you know answering mike's question it's really ray was in the round you know he wasn't just concentrating on one specific aspect so ray would be involved in everything from finance to production live action and the directors because of course although Ray's technique takes place in isolation it's 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 limbs it's tentacles if you are go out to every aspect of the production from finance to scheduling to um to catering even you know how many actors do we need in how how often do we have to feed them so I think the best way to describe it is that you know Ray's involvement was was all-encompassing he would help choose the actors, the directors, 
even the cinematographers, I think that's the key one. He worked with some marvellous lighting people like Ted Moore, who, who lit some of the early James Bond films. So it's really getting that ensemble of people and trying to maintain them through each production. You know, I found myself, and I've worked with camera men and, and, and sound people, you want the same people. So it's a great question, Mike. And I'm going to say, have a look at some of the books, because if there's anything in the books that um, doesn't answer your question, come back to us. If you want to know something much more specific, we have logs when Ray was animating. We know in some cases what music he listened to when he was animating. So we can answer some quite specific questions. But um, your wonderful question, which is about what was Ray's role, it was everything from producer to overseer to animator to creative genius. It was all-encompassing. So thanks for that question, Mike. I think the thing about the music that Ray listened to while he was working, I, I would like to learn a bit more about that myself because he really got into the zone when he was animating specifically and the music he had on just helped him get into this uh, this frame of mind where he, he just would work for days on end without without rest really. I know that even during Clash of the Titans, you know, he was he was 62 years old or 61 years old. He had a cot in the studio, he had a bed in the studio where he'd just sleep in that, get up and start animating again. And that, that's just such an incredible work ethic, uh, very, very admirable. I've had enough of your philosophy. It's time for action, not words. Um, question two then. George Guzman uh, would like to ask, well, I think this is a really interesting question. Um, he'd like to know a little more about Ray's friend and producer Charles Sneer, who was involved in so many of uh, Ray's films. Now it's been said that Willis O'Brien, if Willis O'Brien had had a smart producer like Schneer, many of his projects might not have been aborted. Uh, so Schneer really was the unsung hero in a, in a lot of cases uh, with regards to Ray's films. Would you be able to talk a little more about Charles Sneer and his involvement with Ray's movies? Yes, definitely. I mean, you know, they're they're men from the same mould in many respects, but um, in terms of personalities, very different. Charles Schneer is everything one imagines. A, a film producer might be a Hollywood movie producer. When we had a um, memorial service for Ray when he died in 2013, and the eminent British producer Jeremy Thomas came along, um, because Jeremy Thomas, who we know now as the multi-Oscar winner for The Last Emperor and lots of other wonderful films, and, and very much a, a director's producer, somebody that directors levitate towards. He was a cutting room assistant for Ray on the Golden Voyage of Sinbad. So he was working as an edit room assistant. Now, he was called to Charles Schneer's office because Ray had asked him to buy some pencils and note paper for uh, making um, annotations of the edit. And he put his little receipt in. The front office rang and said, please send Jeremy Thomas up to meet Charles Schneer. So Charles Schneer wanted to speak to Jeremy Thomas about pencils and paper that he'd bought and charged against the Golden Voyager Sinbad. And he said in no uncertain terms to Jeremy Thomas. Um, and, and Jeremy re recounts his story with, with much um, um, good humour and, and much affection that effectively Charles Schneer, you know, chewed him, chewed him out and said, look, when you're buying pens, paper and pencils, you come here, we buy it all centrally. It's much, much cheaper. That story says a lot because it meant that Charles Schneer had his eye on everything from the dollar, the cent, the pound and the pence. So when a producer has a stranglehold or a control, if you like, of all aspects of the budget, he's working at his best because what a producer can never do 
is deliver something over budget and late. Once you, you do that once, you never get the chance to do it a second time. So people talk about Ray Harryhausen being a very gentlemanly person, which he was, and a very gentle man, which he was. Charles Schneer had to be effectively bad cop to raise good cop. And it was a, a partnership that worked incredibly well. Um, in terms of his life story, um, Charles H. Schneer was uh, born in Norfolk, Virginia um, in 1940. And he was part of the photographic units uh, in the U.S. Army Signal Corps uh, during the war. And he moved to Hollywood uh, following um, the end of the war. And he joined Columbia Pictures and he was introduced to Ray Harryhausen by a mutual friend. Um, and they made it came from beneath the sea. It was an opportunity for them to bring together their sort of skill bases of, of getting a deal, cutting a deal and doing something which um, which sort of felt current. Um, but certainly in terms of his work away from Ray, he'd, he'd worked on different projects, none of which people really talk about today. Um, he'd worked on romantic comedies, he worked on a few musicals, but it's really for his Harryhausen work that he's best uh, and most warmly known for. When Ray and Charles Schneer decided they'd make the UK their base, they both bought with their wives houses um, on the same street, Ilchester Place in uh, in West London. So they very much, very much sort of worked and lived in a sense together in that they were local to each other. But I do know that Ray said to me he wanted to live there because his wife asked for a house that was near Harrods. So um, perhaps perhaps that's the true story behind why they, they live so closely together. But um, no, he's he's pivotal. He's very much the, um, I suppose now, in terms of historically, the silent partner to the, the, um, the creation of the Ray Harryhausen legacy. You make them sound very sort of yin and yang. You know, you've got the good, good cop, bad cop. You know, Ray, Ray never had to work on any films that were really beneath his talents. And if anything, he ended on a high with Clash of the Titans, which was his biggest film to date, his biggest budget film to date. Um, and Willis O'Brien, Ray's mentor and hero, um, sadly towards the end suffered, well, he suffered some personal tragedies, but also in terms of his career, t- took on quite a lot of work that maybe he shouldn't have been doing for someone of his stature. So I wonder, I know that Ray had his head screwed on right and probably wouldn't have done anything which was going to be damaging but I wonder if just having having this friend and this person to collaborate with in the form of Charles Schneer who had a little bit of a harder edge just helped Ray to always be working on the highest quality films possible and and as you say with the budget being so tight in all these films helping steer the ship in the right direction to maintain the good name of the Ray Harryhausen and Charles Schneer collaboration. That's right. You know, the hardest thing to do after you've made a film is to make a second film. And so it's always back to square one. So you need someone to have that energy. Who are you? Perseus, prince and heir to the kingdom of Argos. You, you know him. Only from a dream. I beg you, abandon me. Ask your riddle. Um, so question three here from Mike Tharm. And he's got a question about the build-up technique used on the foam puppets used 
throughout Ray's career. So the Redosaurus was Ray's last build-up puppet before moving to foam puppets. John, do you know why that transition took place? Was that due to budget or time or a preferred puppet-making process? And did this change the way that he sculpted his models before casting them? I think often when there's changes in technology and, you know, with latex and foam and so on, there's one of the things you don't want to have to do is to basically strip the skin off, the foam latex off, and and to to rebuild it, particularly during a shoot. And often some of the puppets would split under the studio lighting, so it would have to be repaired. Um, So more often than not, when Ray has changed techniques, it's to do with changes in chemical technology, what's going to be more long-lasting, and also what's going to be more flexible. Because if Ray was animating today... There are so many different silicons that he could use. Uh, he certainly wouldn't be using foam rubber. Um, silicon is much more supple. It has a translucent quality as well. So more often than not, when Ray changed techniques, it was because there'd been um, some improvements in chemicals. Um, and certainly when he was photographing as well, there'd been better um, improvements in lenses and uh, grain of, of film stock speeds. Then he would always he would always take that option and... I'm assuming that's the answer to that. I, I stand to be corrected on that if I'm not right. So there will be a there will be a tsunami of, of of fan comments if I'm not right on that. But I'm gonna I'm gonna suggest that's the answer. Well, I think what what's great about um, being involved in this podcast and being involved in the social media is that. If we get something wrong, there's a lot of people out there that are happy to correct us, and that's brilliant to have so many animators that listen to what we're saying or who comment on what we talk about, and we're able to to learn from them. Ray's enthusiastic fan base know so much about these things. Uh, John, if, if, if anything you said there was incorrect, I'm sure we'll find out about it soon enough. Why do you stare at me? You have the belief of destiny, for that is what has brought us together. And with the help of Allah, we will surely triumph. There is an old proverb I choose to believe. Trust in Allah. Tie up your camel. Um, So, question from Christopher Harold here. Um, And he wants to know about Ray's lost projects. Um, Is there any specific ones that you think are are particularly interesting and any good reasons why they didn't go into production? Um, Yes, there there are several. I mean, there um, there was many unrealized projects. Ray had his own version of War of the Worlds he wanted to make. And we have some fantastic artwork. We talked in a previous episode about Earth versus the Flying Saucers, and George Powell had made his version of War of the Worlds a few years earlier. And I'm a big fan of the George Powell film. I think it's fantastic. George Powell, for technical and special effects uh, convenience reasons, hung everything on strings in a marionette style similar to Thunderbirds. So he didn't have the tripod legs on the Martian invaders Ray's film did, and or his concept for the film did, and we have some stunning artwork in the Foundation Archive, which shows what Ray would have intended with his mechanical tripod creatures. So that's one that um, would have been fantastic if it had been made. Uh, he'd taken on some of the projects you mentioned earlier about Willis O'Brien. Ray took on several Willis O'Brien projects to try and get them made. Um, the Valley of Mists was one of them, and uh, that later became the basis for the Valley of Guanji, which Ray made in the early 70s with um, Warner Brothers and Seven Arts. So that, that kind of evolved, as it were, from an unrealised project. In, in the 1950s, he wanted to do Baron Munchausen. And I know that when Terry Gilliam did his Baron Munchausen in the mid-80s, Ray very much felt that 
you know, Terry done such a terrific job of this, even though it wasn't received particularly well commercially. Um, Ray felt that it had been done. So it wasn't something that Terry realised until he came to Ray's memorial and we had that conversation. And he was, you know, he's quite heartened to hear that Ray thought so much of that particular film. Um, and again, it's a film that has many of its fans. Um, Skin and Bones was a film based on a novel by uh, Thorm Smith about a photographer who invents a compound that makes him invisible, but you see his bones. So I think we all know where that would go. Um, Ray was, you know, the expert on animating the skeleton. There were other uh, projects planned for Sinbad. Um, Sinbad Goes to Mars is probably the one that's most widely discussed. Um, there was a sequel to Clash of the Titans plans called Force of the Trojans. So when we've seen the remake of Clash of the Titans back in 2010, that had its own sequel called Wrath of the Titans. Ray's sequel to his own Clash of the Titans would have been very different. And we do have um, lots of that information in the Foundation's archives. So we're hoping to make some of that available in, in, a, in a wider sense in uh, in the coming years. But, you know, why do projects not get made? Well, Stanley Kubrick for years tried to get a Napoleon project off the ground starring Jack Nicholson. All filmmakers have projects they've been trying to get going for years and years. And sometimes it's surprising when it's very well-known people. You think, hey, surely they just pick up the phone and, and the money comes flying. It really doesn't. And with Ray, often they were asked by studios to do something very similar to what they'd just done. So if you think of Ray's last two or three films, it's two Sinbads in a row, plus Clash of the Titans. Very similar projects, similar narrative drive, on an epic adventure or quest, and along the way we meet some creatures and there's lots of action and a bit of romance. So you can get painted into a corner if you're particularly successful at one type of film then it's only reasonable if a studio is putting up the uh, the uh, the risk and the money that they ask for something similar. So some of Ray's projects were a bit unusual and and sometimes it was simply a case of time. You can only make one film every two or three years and it was only right and proper that if a studio says, no, what else have you got? That they're able to pull something else out of the bag and say, look, we've got this as well. Uh, and a sequel to a Sinbad was a surefire commission. So I think it's... In a sense, I can understand why Ray made the films he did because better to be working every two or three years on a project than, than holding on to something for decades only for it never to be made. Well, a lot of what you're saying is, is very interesting. I think uh, Force of the Trojans, that went quite a bit further than you know an, an idea which never made it off the drawing board because they actually scouted for locations for that film and there's a script and there's lots of sketches, concept sketches, key drawings. So that's a real tantalising one for fans. You know, That's the one that nearly could have been, but sadly it, it wasn't to be and, and, and Ray ended up retiring. But yeah, a lot of the ones you've talked about there... If you read the Ray Harryhausen An Animated Life book, there's a list at the end and it's there's so many ideas which he had throughout the years that just didn't come to fruition for one reason or another. I have to give a shout out to, to my mum here. My mum is a huge Ray Harryhausen fan. She wants a job as my assistant. I've told her she can't because that would just be too much. She's too, too much of an obsessive fan. But uh, the one that she is really interested in is Ray's uh, mooted idea of doing Dante's Inferno. There's some artwork entitled Jason in the Underworld. Um, a lot, Obviously, a lot of Ray Harryhausen's artwork is um, influenced by Gustave Doré. 
who who uh, did these engravings of Dante's Inferno. And we have this picture which is done by Ray. Ostentatiously, Jason in the Underworld, it really it looks a lot like Dante's Inferno. And it's the scene, the famous scene where the skeletons come out of the ground. The original scene was corpses coming out of the ground in the Underworld. Ray decided this was maybe a bit too overbearing, a little too gloomy. And that a, a long film, a 90-minute film of Dante's Inferno all these tormented souls and all the darkness might have been a little too much for people. I would have loved to have seen it and uh, I know it's something a lot of people are interested in. It definitely would have been fascinating to see a 90 minute or, or longer stop motion vision of Dante's Inferno from Ray Harryhausen. So that, that, that would be my choice for one I, w- I would have liked to have seen. But if you think about, you know, if you pitch that to a studio and you went in, you've just had a successful family project like the Golden Voyage of Sinbad. And you said, what I want to do next, you know, is, um, is is look at a film about the tortured soul of sinners for 90 minutes. The studio said, well, hang on, how does that, how, where does that fit in our summer schedule? Is this a kid's film? And it, 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 it would be a hard, that would be a hard sell. And if it didn't work, it would be very difficult to get back through the door. So you always kind of have to think about that. If we um, we can cut to probably a bit of audio from my film school documentary, because I asked Ray directly about his influence of Gustave Doré, and he tells us, so it'd be great to hear from the man himself, um, on uh, what his plans were for doing Dante's Inferno. Some time ago, I wanted to uh, um, make a film about Dante's Inferno because of Gustave Doré's marvellous drawings. But uh, in thinking it over, I wonder very seriously how many people can sit through an hour and a half of the vicissitudes of tormented souls. Ray has admired and studied Doré since he was a student. He was my mentor. I uh, based my style of drawing on Gustave Doré, and I, I find that he has a great imagination. He was really the original art director for films, because most of the early filmmakers uh, studied his uh, drawings to a great degree for c- crowd composition. Cecil B. DeMille used to use them a great deal, and yeah. so did Marion Cooper and Willis O'Brien. Gustave Dory is neck and neck with King Kong in terms of books and, and items in the archive that Ray was interested in. I think those were his two main influences, and uh, the Gustave Dory work found its way into Ray's films in different ways, but as you say, a two-hour slog of tormented souls might have been a bit much of a hard sell back in the 1970s okay i've got another question here uh this is a really good one from angus lamont and he would like to know a little more about ray's early years and experiments so i'm guessing that's everything pre mighty joe young and probably before the fairy tales as well Angus's question is interesting, and he asks about Ray's early years and experiments. We have quite a lot of those in the archive, so in picture form, photographically, and with some film as well. And in the case of Ray's early years, there's a DVD called Ray Harryhausen, The Early Years, where you can see the fairy tale stories that he shot on 16mm colour. And there's lots of fantastic extras on there as well, because there's the um, test footage for the elementals, which are sort of winged kind of creatures that look very Lord of the Rings-ish. And so that's probably the best place to have a look at Ray's early work is the DVD called Ray Harryhausen, The Early Years. I don't think it's available to buy um, anymore. I think it's a deleted title, but you should be able to find one 
on uh, on eBay or possibly on Amazon. No, I I got one on Amazon quite recently, so you can still you can still get it. It's, it's still out there, and it's a fantastic DVD. It's packed to the rafters with all this early footage. So on social media recently, I posted a picture of the Jupiterian, which is one of Ray's very early pieces of art. Um, he drew that when he was seventeen years old. It you you'd never tell by looking at it because it's so accomplished. And this is of uh, a a very unusual looking alien. And subsequently, a model was built and test footage was shot. However, that footage doesn't seem to appear on the early years DVD. Do you know what the reason for that? I don't know. And I know that there are test footage um, sequences right up until Clash of the Titans that we haven't located. So it may well be that I know in the archive we have cans of film and tapes that haven't been fully explored and logged. So that might be something that we've yet to uncover. Because in Clash of the Titans, people may or may not know this, that uh, Ray shot test footage with Pegasus, the flying horse, with the legs hanging and the wings flapping to see if they could possibly do it in, in that form. And he said, no, it didn't work at all. It looked like the horse was dead. So um, I said to him at the time, any chance of seeing that footage? And he said, oh, no, John, I can't show you that footage. Um, so, <laughs> But we do have that footage and it is somewhere, I hope, in the Foundation's film and media archive. Well, I know that um, that Ray wasn't too keen on the Jupiterian model itself when he when he started filming because he realised it was just too impractical. It it was a crazy design and it just didn't you know it didn't move as a as a real creature would. And it was an early lesson for him. As I said, he was only seventeen at the time. So I wonder if maybe Ray thought he didn't think it was suitable for for public consumption and and buried it somewhere in the archive. Uh, we'll maybe find it in years to come, but. Whether, whether we show it to the wider world, if Ray didn't want it to be seen, then maybe we should just keep it secret ourselves. Come a little closer, so that we can get a better look at you. <laughs> we are honoured by your visit. What can we do to help you? Uh, I need your advice. Then you must come a little closer. You see, my two sisters here are somewhat deaf. Okay, the final questions here. Well, there's two two questions here that are quite similar so I'll, I'll ask them both this from Mike Anderson and Dan Whitehead and they would both like to know a little more about the directors that were involved in Ray's films because all of Ray's films are known as Ray Harryhausen films you don't you don't think of the Karen Matthews or Nathan Duran or any of the directors or actors that are involved you think of them as Ray Harryhausen films and uh Mike and Dan would like to know if you have any insight on how we worked with the director on some of these films, how the directors felt having this overbearing, you know, this legend working alongside them, re really calling the shots, and whether that caused any friction. No, the, the short answer to that is that these films weren't really considered Ray Harryhausen films until probably the 70s onwards, um, when there were science fiction magazines like uh, uh, Starlog, Starburst, and of course previous to that, famous Monsters of Filmland. So in terms of marketing, in the way that we think of a Steven Spielberg film, they weren't marketed with Ray's name above the title. So when you pick up a Blu-ray set now and it says the Ray Harryhausen collection and the films of Ray Harryhausen, that wasn't how the um, probably the first maybe even three quarters of his films were, were marketed. You know, Dynamation might have been front and centre, the new technique, the new cinema technique. But um, there wasn't a sort of a loyal fan base for him as a person in that sense. Um, 
there was a small fan base that used to buy magazines and there was a Ray Harryhausen special effects magazine as well. Um, it's only really in more recent years and certainly since he's retired that they've been grouped together and called the Ray Harryhausen Collection. So I don't think directors felt particularly sidelined at the time, um, but they would choose directors who understood the animation techniques so Nathan Duran worked on several pictures. They would choose directors, in the case of Clash of the Titans, that could work well with actors. So that when Ray came in to direct those particular sequences with actors for animation, um, there wouldn't be friction. So as a producer, as he was on all of his films, with Charles Schneer, they would meet with directors and they would ask those questions. They would look at their work. They would speak to people in the industry. So you wouldn't have the kind of conflicts where a director says, get off my set, you know, um, because that would be worked out well in advance. People coming onto these films would know that either you have to have some expertise in this area or have none at all, and Ray Harryhausen will fill that gap, but you really couldn't have a director coming on saying, you know, I was thinking, I've seen your Sinbad films, but for this one, we're going to do it very differently. Um, Charles Schneer and Ray Harryhausen were very much in control of all aspects, including the directors and to be fair the directors did great jobs in, in in every case but it was important that they understood that when Ray came on to direct the actors um, for a sequence of, of a fight and so on where later a monster would be placed in it was important for them to understand it was Ray's job and it was nobody else could have replaced him in that so I don't know of any particular f frictions between that relationship however because all of these films are shot very fast I suspect there may have been friction between the producer's office and the director saying look I need more time I want to get more shots I need a better performance that I would say would be the friction because when a film would be greenlit by the studios it might be three years later perhaps that it finally hits theatres so you know Charles Schneer, for very good reason, had to be quite careful with the money when filming principal photography because there's still a fair amount of money needed to create the uh, special effects in post-production. So I suspect any friction that occurred would have been around that, would have been around the time and budget constraints, but not as a result of Ray's intervention. I suppose that you can't, uh, you can't improvise this the stop motion work which Ray did so I guess that that meant the uh, Charles Schneer had to be the enforcer in terms of discipline you know the the film couldn't go on go over budget or over length because the allotted time set for the special effects was, was sacrosanct so I can imagine some directors maybe not understanding that aspect of things but for Jason there are other adventures I have not yet finished with Jason let us continue the game another day as we said previously we have a special prize to give to uh, the person who sent in our favorite question we have the fifth ray harryhausen book which is a life in pictures a fantastic book limited edition some great stuff in there from ray's personal life as well as from all of his films and we have a copy of that to give to the person who submitted our favorite question today so john which question did you enjoy answering most um i think it was mike anderson's question that i thought um you know, gave us most pause for thoughts and made us think about Ray's relationship with the rest of the crew, his presence on the set. So, so well done, Mike. You'll be getting a copy of that wonderful book. 
Well, it was actually, uh, John, it was Mike and Dan sent more or less the same question, very similar questions. So what are you thinking? Go on then, we'll, we'll, Dan can have one as well. So well done, Dan Whiteshead. You're going to get a copy of the Dan book. Dan Whitehead and Mike Anderson. Two winners. Well done, guys. Well, well, we'll be in touch with you over social media to let you know that you've you've won. Um, it's a, as I said, it's a great book. There's some really fantastic pictures in there, which I don't think have have been seen anywhere else. So, so it's a great prize. We'll be in touch over Facebook. I think you've contacted us through Facebook, so we'll get in touch with you both, um, and we'll get your details so we can post it out to you. I've really enjoyed that, John. That's that's been a great Q and A session. Well done. Your your brain might need a rest after all that. There were a, a few testing ones in there. I'll go and have a lie down by the fountain of youth from Golden Voyages Sinbad and see if that yeah. does anything. I just want to give, I just want to give a shout out to um to Rob Ede, who's a professional film and television sound recorder, and who's worked with me on lots of film and TV work, and actually recorded all of the commentaries at Ray Harryhausen's house over the last few years with me. Uh, Rob actually helped us set up this whole podcast um, technology that we're using to speak to you today with. So thanks very much, Rob. And if anyone wants to use a an incredibly busy and very successful sound recorder, it's Rob Ease. You'll find him on Google. No, he's been incredibly helpful. He's answered all my questions. And believe me, I had a lot about getting this uh, this podcast set up. So if you want him, you've got to catch him because he seems to go on a lot of adventures. He always seems to be out in, uh, out in the wilderness having fun and getting chased by snakes and spiders and things. And, ha- and have, he seems like a real Ray Harryhausen hero figure. So yeah, thanks, Rob. It's been fantastic advice that you've given us for this. And thank you to everyone who sent in questions. We'll have to do this again sometime. Yes, definitely. And uh, I'm just looking, Rob's got a website, so you can get him at robeed.audio. How very cool. So that's Rob and Ede spelled E-A-D-E dot audio. So thanks very much, Rob. And Connor, we'll, uh, we'll speak again next month. Copyrights in the Ray Harryhausen podcast is owned by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, a registered Scottish charity, number SC001419, 2016. This recording may not be reproduced in whole or in parts without written permission from the Foundation. The views expressed within these podcasts are not necessarily reflective of those of the Foundation, its trustees or employees. For further terms and conditions, please contact us at rayharryhausen.com where you can find our Twitter and Facebook links.